Marketers and advertisers, brands big and small, you've been after a special someone for a while now. You think they're into you. I mean, you share the same interests, both passionate about the same stuff. Why wouldn't they be? Wait, there's a moment of silence. It's finally just you two alone. They're waiting. Go on, shoot your shot. You've got a voice, use it now. Hearts are racing, breathing becomes heavier. This is your chance to win them over. So what are you gonna say? Get closer to your audience, make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started. Hello, Voom listeners. Before we dive into today's podcast, I wanted to mention that this week we're approaching the final stages of the Voom competition. That's the UK and Ireland's most exciting pitch competition where growing businesses of all shapes and sizes are competing for the chance to pitch to Richard Branson and win a share of £1 million worth of prizes and business support. The semi-finals are taking place this Monday, the 21st of May in Manchester, before the finale in London on Wednesday, the 23rd of May. We'll be covering the action and hearing some of the winning pitches in our next couple of episodes. But if you want to keep up to date with all the latest and watch live streams from the event, you can head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash voom to keep your finger on the pulse. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Welcome to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business, the show all about entrepreneurship with the world's most exciting founders, thinkers and risk takers in conversation. I'm Nikki Bady and so far in this series we've been looking at disruption across a range of industries, from problem-solving products to new opportunities in the age of social media. But alongside advancements driven by tech, today it seems our business cultures and the ways in which we work are also rapidly changing, with more and more people redefining success, with values driven by purpose rather than profits alone. On the podcast today, I am thrilled to be joined by two guests who are innovating with that spirit in mind, sharing a mission to improve lives and enable others along the way. My first guest journey began after the birth of her first child when she was struck with a sense of loneliness and isolation in the early stages of motherhood. Turning that frustration into an opportunity, she decided to build an app and create a community for mums far and wide to chat, connect and meet, to beat loneliness and ultimately feel like themselves again called Peanut and described by the likes of the New York Times as an app for mothers who missed out on Tinder. I'm very pleased to welcome co-founder Michelle Kennedy. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So did you really miss out on Tinder? That has to be my first question. Genuinely, I mean, I worked in the dating industry, so I was building kind of dating products, but I wasn't using them, actually. I, I just wasn't. I'd already met my husband. And, and so, yes, I did miss out on Tinder from a user perspective but not from a kind of product and UX perspective because I was building them. And obviously we're going to talk further on that in a little while and Michelle it's worth mentioning that um, you do have this incredible background first as a lawyer 
then going on to roles in companies like the social network Badoo before becoming a key player at the dating app Bumble. So hugely qualified in that area. And Pina, you're also joined by Greg Olofsky as your co-founder. He is the former CTO of Deliveroo. So you really mean business. And I'm looking forward to hearing how those experiences have come together within this company. Um, a very quick question before we go on, though. Why the name Peanut? Oh, that was what I called my bump when I was pregnant. I did think that might be the case. Yeah. I'd read somewhere that he was the size of a peanut at that time. Right. It stuck. Aww. Do you still call him Peanut? Not anymore. Okay. Although he'll always be my little peanut. Yes. But, you know, there is another peanut in the, in the family now. The business. Oh. I meant the business. <laughs> I was looking at her Sorry. stomach Everyone's when she's so little. No, I, the, the business. <laughs> Essentially, you've created an algorithm to match mothers with similar interests and experiences. Is, is that right, very quickly? Yeah, it's basically matching women based on like-minded elements. And the, the more you use it, the smarter the algorithm becomes about who you want to meet, effectively. So that's one part. And then the second part is about conversations across the community, so posts and questions and responses. And again, using machine learning, the more you interact with it, the smarter it becomes about the type of content you see. And continuing on this theme, the second person I want to introduce today, another superwoman, digital skills expert, founder of numerous initiatives aimed at empowering people through tech. In 1998, she founded BCS Women, the UK's very first online network for women in tech. Before then starting Hashtag Tech Mums in 2012, a social enterprise offering short courses to mothers interested in gaining skills in everything from basic IT to building apps and coding. She's also a celebrated speaker and writer. It's Dr Sue Black. Hello, Sue. Hi. Thank you for being here. You're very welcome. So, Sue, you also led a hugely successful campaign a few years ago to save Bletchley Park, the yeah. site where Alan Turing and a team of predominantly female code breakers helped to change the course of World War II, inspiring generations thereafter. So I'd like to know what that meant to you and, and the importance of role models. We might talk about that a bit later. My first question, though, a broad one. There's a term sometimes used to describe people like the two of you, which is mumpreneur. Now, how do you feel about that word? Do we like it? Do we loathe it? Michelle? We do not like that word. <laughs> <laughs> we loathe that word. I've never heard anyone called a dadtrepreneur. It's the most bizarre alien concept to me. And if we're trying to celebrate people with brilliant ideas, let's not kind of give them these weird labels that really segment them and put them in a different category. It's, it's very strange. I guess in a way it highlights that mums can be entrepreneurs, so to try and take a positive view on it but really like we're all entrepreneurs so why why do you have to highlight the fact that we're mums or or women or women yeah or i don't know well i mean some people wear it as a badge of honor i'm sure others think it's completely patronizing and belittling so does being a tech mum allow you to do business that wasn't previously possible michelle I don't know. I, I kind of struggle with the concept of it's because I'm a mom. I mean, yeah. obviously, my my business is in, inherently tied to becoming a mother um, in terms of what I then decided to do. But ultimately, it was a business decision. The market 
to do with mothers is worth $2 trillion. You know, this is there's nothing patronising about that number. And this is an entire generation of women who are growing up mobile first. And so it felt inevitable and obvious to me that, of course, we should create a product which reflects modern motherhood and, and kind of brings motherhood along on that journey. So I don't see it as... I specifically related to motherhood, although that was the trigger, if that makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. Total sense. I suppose the idea of people being able to be involved in tech and earn their money from tech means that they could perhaps have more flexible working hours, that they can juggle better. Is that just a myth? It's a myth. <laughs> I think that's a very small part of it. So, yeah, so okay. that's part of it, but that's not like the main focus. I mean, you know, so we're teaching all sorts of technology skills to mums and lots of it is about building confidence with technology so that mums will just go out there and do stuff for themselves. Mm. And I started it because I started running workshops with seven-year-old kids, teaching them stuff like coding and app design. And when we got the parents in at the end of the day and said, you know, like, it's your turn now, have a go. The kids can show you what they've been doing and you have a go too. In general, not everyone, but in general, the dads had a go and in general, the mums looked a bit horrified. And I really really wanted to help mums to realise that they can do all of these things, you know, that there's nothing to stop them. So, like, build their confidence and, and teach them the skills so they can just get out there and do whatever they want to do. Your journey into Texu was a very moving story. In fact, by the age of 25, you'd found yourself living in a refuge with no job. You had three young children to take care of. Yeah. Tell us how computer science then helped change your situation. <laughs> so we ended up in a refuge, unfortunately. When we left the refuge, we got a council flat in Brixton and my children then were, I think, uh, my oldest was four and the twins were two. And so I needed to get them sorted kind of into some sort of childcare. So I got my daughter into reception class in school and got the twins into a playgroup, like, for two hours a day. And then I was like, so what am I going to do now? I'd always loved maths at school. I was quite geeky, I suppose. And um, I thought about going back to work, so we were on benefits, going back to work. But then I realised I'd left school with five O-levels. I wasn't going to get a high-paying job. Mm. And to support three children on my own, I was going to have to earn a reasonable amount of money. And basically, I just couldn't have earned enough to even pay for childcare. So that going to work wasn't an option. So I thought, well, why don't I try going back to, to education? I went along to the local college, Southwark College, said I wanted to do maths A-level, met a great tutor, Willie Taylor, who persuaded me to do a polymaths course, which was kind of like a fast track to two maths A-levels in a year. Two maths A-levels? Yeah, I know, two, two evenings a week. So just like six hours a week in the classroom and then 20 hours a week home study. Um, so that kind of fitted quite well with my, you know, my situation with the kids and everything. So, you know, I remember going to the first class uh, of that, you know, and I was kind of at that time like, um, you know, I used to have like a big hair, wear a motorbike jacket, mm -hmm. DMs and a miniskirt walking into this classroom and it was nearly all guys from the city so I like nearly had a heart attack and died on the spot when I walked into the, walked into the classroom but then I saw a, a woman sitting at the back who looked like a bit like me so I went and sat next to her Lorna 
and we both kind of bonded really quickly. And then at the end of the year, we came joint top of the class. So so that was really cool. That boosted both our confidence. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then from doing maths, I could either choose computing or maths as a, a degree to go on to university. And I just thought, well, there's lots of maths in computing. And I just really thought technology is the future. That's where all the exciting jobs are going to be. So I chose computer science. And your website has the brilliant subtitle, Computing is Too Important to be Left to Men. So yeah. when did you realise that you could inspire people to follow similar paths as you have or to enable them in some way? I think it's it's just kind of happened gradually. And I still kind of have to pinch myself, really, because I, I do a lot of public speaking. And for me, I basically feel like I go in and just say, well, I did this, I did that, I had this choice to make, mm. and I made that choice, and I've done this, and I care about that. And people are inspired to, to go off and kind of reach their potential, do what they want to do. So it's kind of come as a surprise to me, but I absolutely love it. You know, like one of my, my uh, talks is, if I can do it, so can you. And I, I really believe that's true. And I think we're not really brought up to to kind of work our way through the challenges that come along. You know, everyone gets really difficult times, everybody. And if you stop when you're having difficulties, you stay stuck in that situation. And I think we don't really get taught that at school. I don't think that's a big message that comes over through the media or anything. Yeah. But I think it's just critical for success is to kind of be resilient and keep going to get out to the good times. Good advice. Michelle, with Peanut, you've used your own experiences as a catalyst, anyway. And I suppose you're your own target audience, aren't you? I hope so. <laughs> I mean, if I don't use my product, I don't know who will. So um, tell me how the app actually came to be. Um, I, as you mentioned, I started life as a lawyer. And, and actually, just, just to touch on what Sue said, you know, as women, we're also not really taught how to deal with failure I think we're, we're really encouraged all the time never never get anything wrong mm. uh, work a bit harder and you can have exactly what you want but only if you work really hard and then if things don't go exactly to plan or exactly how in your head oh I'm going to take this exam or I'm going to get this you know hit this KPI whatever it is all of a sudden we're a bit kind of at sea and we, we don't know what to do and we, we haven't really been equipped for that so starting life as a lawyer it's lots of kind of hit this Get get this training contract, get to this firm, do this. And then obviously um, joining a dating platform was completely different. But again, it was set this team up, um, hit this growth target, whatever it might be, and, and on it went. Um, when I had Finn, all of a sudden, all of that goes out of the window. No one's telling you, right, you have to hit this target. Mm. Or, you know, here's that KPI. That doesn't exist. You have, it's a little person. And, you know, I, I really felt I wasn't equipped for that. And I suppose more readily as well, I wasn't sure that it was OK for me to verbalise it because that would be failure. Right. And so I struggled kind of on my own for a while. And that's not say on my own. You know, I have my, my husband. and But I kept it very much within me. Mm -hmm. and I didn't talk about it. Now I'll talk about it with everyone. And the more you talk about it, the more you see that it's so it's common. It's common, yeah. And it's out there. And, and how does Peanut the app actually work and feel? Describe it for us. So I think I was looking at products that were aimed at mothers and feeling a bit like, that's not me. Like what? Everything had changed and nothing had changed. I didn't really respond when people would call, hi, mommy. I'd be looking over my shoulder like, who are they talking? Oh, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 was a, it was a very weird time for me. I, I still thought of myself as Michelle. I didn't think that 
I had changed so much that I, I had to respond in this way. And I, I felt a lot of the messaging and branding and tone was aimed at this person that I didn't feel like I was. So that was the first part. I really wanted to change the narrative. I am a woman first and motherhood is absolutely the best part of who I am, but it's part of who I am. Mm. And I didn't feel like anyone was really embracing that. So that was from a kind of branding perspective what I wanted to reflect. From a product perspective, I really just wanted slick, clean UX UI. There were products out there, we're using them in our everyday lives, and no one was doing it again for this market. So you create a profile, you choose three packs that describe yourself, whether you're a spiritual gangster or whether you're a boss or whatever it might be. What's the other one and for me? If I'm going on there creating a profile, what, what would I oh, do? Oh, there's many. Spiritual gangster, wine time, that's me. Geek, <laughs> geek chic, also me. Yeah. Um, dance machine, whatever it is. So you we, you there could be, a, so be, but you could be a Venn diagram of all of them, could you? Or are you, is it you do a little personality tick, 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 and figure it out? To be honest, that's just like it's been an icebreaker. It's fun. Okay. It's, it's you gotcha. choose three, but you talk about where you studied or where you work or the languages you speak or any of those kind of defining characteristics of you, mm. not of your child, of you. Right. And then you'll create a profile, and then you'll start seeing other women near you or near your home depending on what filter you select and you swipe up to say hi you <laughs> swipe down for maybe later and um, do, 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 do I know that you've said maybe later for me no good okay <laughs> no, I just gotta be sure no rejection on peanuts double <laughs> opt-in Love that. And the more you kind of use it, the smarter we become. And then Pages was really about thinking, OK, what is the landscape for when I needed to ask questions? How do I speak to women like me about topics that matter to me, whether it is reskilling, whether it is uh, taking my maternity leave, problems at work, or right down to my baby won't sleep, or my mother-in-law is being a nightmare. I have the best mother-in-law. That's not me personally. No, I hear you. Um, so the, all of those kind of questions and women across the community will respond and engage. It's a really, really positive community and network, and that was really important to me. So do you have any favourite examples of brilliant events or connections that have been made through the peanut app already? Things that make you think, this is why I started it. Oh, my God. I have... It's the best thing in the whole world when you hear from women who are using peanut. And, and I mean that very, very sincerely in any walk of life. Most recently, I was talking to a woman who um, is a military spouse. And so there is probably uniquely no other kind of category of family who is moving around as much. Mm. She was in the US, actually, and she was just talking about it's very difficult and using peanut to help her find someone. I mean, that's amazing to me. And, you know, to be able to serve a... A, a specific sector of woman who is really on this different journey and mm -hmm. life journey is amazing. We've had women who have met and started businesses together. Oh, wow. I know. We've had women who have met and found like childcare arrangements, like nanny share. Yeah. Um, very practical. Uh, we've found women who have found their friends. we found women who have found friends and now the partners are friends. Oh, wow. So that's cute. So you're creating little communities. I know. Well, oh. they say it takes a village, right? They but we do. don't live in a village anymore. So, you know, we're, we're living everywhere. So if we can create that, we've succeeded. Wonderful. Sue, the same question to you then in terms of uh, maybe a favourite story or a couple of examples of success by tech mums. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I've got two examples, Amina and Lisa. So Amina is a mum who runs a school uniform shop in Watley Market in the East End. That's near where we started working six years ago. And our course is 
two hours a week for five weeks. And we start with like, what is the cloud? What's hardware? What's software? But kind of office IT, level IT skills, so like email, documents and spreadsheets. So I was going around the classroom in the second week, which is like app design, teaching mums to uh, design their own apps and uh, asking people how they were getting on. So I said, you know, to Amina, so how's it going? And she said, oh, Tech Mums has changed my life. So I said, well, that's great, but how did that happen so quickly? And she said, uh, oh, well, I, I run a school uniform shop down the road and to get my samples over to customers, I package them up and my son takes them over to the customer site. Uh, she said, but, but last week you taught us how to add attachments to emails. And I realised that I can take a photo of the Aww. garment and I can email it across to the customer and um, so I was like, oh, my goodness, I didn't even think of that at yeah. all myself. And uh, I went in to visit her last summer and she said she's now got 10 times the amount of customers. So it, there's, you know, small bits of information like that, but also building confidence that if you don't know how to do something, it doesn't matter. You know, I always kind of say if I'm teaching a class, I've got a PhD in software engineering. I don't know everything to do with technology. There's just so much, mm. you know, you can't. So what you need to do is work out how to find stuff and just be confident to just go out there and ask questions, you know, Google search, whatever. So that's kind of a business-related uh, example. And then there's also Lisa, who did our course in Essex. We work with Essex County Council. And at the end of the course, she gave a speech saying how it had really built her confidence, reminded her of kind of who she was when she left school before she had kids and she was kind of connected back into that person. I think sometimes as a mum you can sort of lose your your own identity uh, and I think it's, it's really uh, good for you to kind of remember who you were before you had kids. And um, I got an email from her recently saying she passed her math GCSE. Yay! Something <laughs> I've never so. managed yeah. to do, by the That's way. Yeah. I'm serious too, I'm serious. That's outrageous. I know, I know. <laughs> How do you both actually make money? How does Peanut make money? How does Tech Moms make money? Michelle? So at the moment, we're not revenue generative. It's really about building the community. The reference point I always give is, let's remember how long it took Facebook to turn on monetization. Well, let's how long remember. did it take? Remind us. Well, I think it was certainly no earlier than the four-year mark, certainly. Mm -hmm. And you really, when you're building something that's a social product, you really need to think about critical mass and density and engagement and so we've got the engagement and we've got good critical mass but we're a year old and okay. we need to we need to kind of build on that before before we kind of move into monetization so are you earning no money right now i'm earning no money right now so that must be hard i mean what, what if somebody out there is listening and they're they're in a similar situation i mean what what can you do? Listen, I, I have to be honest. The the fact that I don't take a salary from Peanut is a personal decision. Right. And if you've raised funding, you are entitled to take a salary from your company and you should. Um, I don't do it because I am just thinking about building the product and mm -hmm. runway and what I can do with that. And I am in the very fortunate position where I earned well when Before, I was yeah. um, doing my previous role and I saved a lot. I mean, I squirreled all the time because I knew eventually I wanted to do something. So I had like my very small war chest, but it's a war chest nonetheless. And so um, that is quite a diff It's a difficult decision when you are earning good money. It's, it's very difficult to step away from that. But if you are in a position where you can either save and maybe you are or maybe you're not, mm -hmm. but there are other things you can do. You can side hustle. 
My friend always talks I about like side that hustle. side hustle. <laughs> there are always side hustles. How you can, can I do. side hustle? I don't know. Maybe, I love that phrase. <laughs> maybe you have maybe you have a skill that someone else wants, and maybe you can do a side hustle. Phone in, sex. I mean, maybe. <laughs> it's the voice, apparently. I mean, it's a great voice. <laughs> That's my side hustle. I people. love that. That's <laughs> a great voice. But other than that, you know, if you've got a skill that someone else wants, maybe you can offer that skill. Maybe you can consult with companies, whatever it is. Maybe there's a way in which you can earn your own tiny, small war chest. And if you can't, and you can't step away from your day job, build your love and your passion in the evenings yeah. and, and weekends. And the thing that is really like important to note is this like entrepreneurship, it's not for the faint-hearted. There mm. is no like, oh, it's easy because I'm working on my own schedule. You're working all the time. Yeah. There is no off. Relentless. It is relentless and it's exhausting. But if you are doing something that you really care about and mm. you feel passionate about, then it's worth it. So it has to be passionate. I always say this. There are other currencies in life. Now, I can say that from a point of semi-privilege, but I I do a job, not this one, this is incredibly well paid. <laughs> I do a job that takes me to have some incredible experiences, but it's really shit money. But I just weigh up what it's doing to me to to help my you know consciousness expand, my knowledge of people expand. Do you both feel the same way? That yeah, there I, th is... I think that's the modern way of working to mm. me. And I think that's kind of where I've ended up as well. So I probably spend half the week on tech mum stuff. In general, unpaid occasionally, you know, a payment's put through because I've just done so much stuff and like, you know, we've got funding in, but in general, unpaid. And I mainly earn money from public speaking and, mm. and consultancy kind of stuff. So it means that I can spend half the week doing things I really care about and, and trying to make the change happen in the world that I want to see. So kind of following my passion. Yeah, and I think it sounds really trite, and I don't mean it in a trite way at all, but it's really important to me that Finn sees how much hard work it takes to make something happen mm. and how fearless you have to be and how determined you have to be and that you make huge sacrifices but it's really worth it. I, it, I find it so important. I want him to know that he can do anything if he kind of has the grit and he'll stick in and do it in the same way that your kids will have seen you and yeah. going to Well, I think it's a really interesting and... point because like now the, my older kids are in their 30s and, you know, at the time, so when I was bringing them up, going to uni... You know, it wasn't easy. I had to drop them at school at nine, get to uni, got there at 10, left at two. So I missed half the lectures at the beginning of my degree and stuff like that. And, and I should just... various some other mums criticised me for neglecting my children because I was studying. You know, I did get some shit for, for kind of working hard and studying and stuff. But, you know, I hoped I was doing the right thing. You don't always know. You, no, know, you know just that. kind of have to go with your instincts. I, I hoped that. I was. But now I can see, you know, they're all doing very well. They're successful in, in all sorts of well, ways. Well, I, I wanted to say to people listening mm. that Sue's just mentioned her children are now in their 30s. One of them isn't. One of them is 14, for example. So <laughs> you're still juggling that work-life yeah, balance, yeah, yeah, aren't absolutely. you? absolutely. But I wouldn't have it any other way. I just love it. How do you juggle work-life balance? Oh, Michelle just like going... <laughs> <laughs> The balance. There's no balance. There isn't. OK. I just don't think there is a thing called balance. And when I believed that there was balance mm -hmm. and I didn't have balance, I felt like I was failing. And so the message has to be to women, 
there is no balance and you're juggling and that's fine. And oh. some days you're a super mum and some days I'm like killing it at work. And it's very rare that the same thing happens on the same day. <laughs> Maybe because so we've got a new moon. Um, maybe I'm getting it right today. I'm, I'm not, actually. I nearly forgot Finn's fancy dress today. Um, and, yeah, you just have to accept it. It's OK. Like, we're imperfect. Right. We're human. That's OK. We live yeah. in an imperfect world. What about you, Sue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like the older you get, the more you know what your priorities are, I mm-hmm. suppose. And so now I know that my, you know, my family is my first priority and everything else comes after that. And sometimes I guess you could call it juggling, but I just kind of think, you know, like next week, I mean, I'm in Scotland for the week, writing a book and going to a meeting at Dundee University. So, you know, my my husband and my daughter are at home, but that's actually good for them to have time without me. It's not I don't have to do everything myself, Mm. you know, and I think kind of sharing the load. I think there's a lot of pressure on women, particularly as mums, that they've got to do it all. But it's like, no, you don't, you know, like. Well, this is refreshing to hear this, (laughs) I have to say. But, you know, we're trying to be like wife or partner or mummy or sister or friend or daughter-in-law or daughter. And all of those roles are in themselves like quite challenging. (laughs) Doing it all at the same time. Just give yourself a break. Break. Give yourself a break. Oh, we love this permission. Michelle, Peanut got a lot of attention in the press, a lot of traction in a fairly short space of time. But the app market is a crowded one, as you know, Mm. because that's a world that you've already come from. So how have you approached growth and what would your top tips be to anybody else looking to build an app? Okay, so this is something I get asked all the time. So many people, I've got an idea for an app and... I'll be honest, I always kind of think, just take a step back. You don't have to start with an app, Mm. right? If you have a concept, it's not because it's an app. You have a concept for something which is either a tool or a problem solver or whatever it might be, and you can test that concept and do a proof of concept in a way that doesn't have to be, and I've built an app. You can test it. You can test it in very small ways. Is there traction if you have a WhatsApp group or a Facebook group? Or you can test to see what the appetite would be for something before you have to go full into building an app. And so otherwise, you're going to build a product for you and not for users. And until you establish that you're going to have users and engagement, don't start with the app. That's really good advice. But my follow up question would then be Why did you start with an app? <laughs> no, it wasn't actually. It was going to be if we were to test it on our WhatsApp group or on our Facebook page. We've only got people who are our friends there who might be like minded. Is that a, a indication enough? I mean, it depends what it is. Yeah. So, so for Peanut, I spoke to women I didn't know, mm. and then I got them to introduce me to another woman that I didn't know, and them to introduce me to another woman I didn't Smart. know. So that I had a pool of women who I was constantly talking to and in a dialogue with about what I was building. It also meant that by the time I came to release, I had a pool of women to release it to who were already vested in what I was doing. So it, you have to have got some insight. It doesn't have to be huge, but there has to be some kind of qualitative insight before you just kind of go and plough your money into something without really thinking about what it is that you're doing. Um, and that worked for me because it was a social product and it was about social discovery and it really depends on what it is that you're doing. But but test it in a more manual way before gotcha. you do it there. Michelle, your co-founder is the former CTO of Deliveroo. How did that relationship come about? <laughs> Such a funny one. Um, I had left Badoo and Bumble 
Um, I was still on the board of both and I was under restrictive covenant, so I couldn't hire anyone that I used to work with. And um, I was speaking to a friend of mine about what I was doing and she said, you know that Greg has just left delivery, you should ask him who to hire. Um, and I was like, that's a good idea. And I kind of waited for the intro and it didn't come and I'm pretty impatient. So I just messaged him and said, I've been waiting for the intro, but I didn't get one. <laughs> so here I am and here's what I'm doing. Can we have a chat? And we started talking and he was like, I like what you're doing. And we decided to do it together. Now, you've also quite successfully raised money from investors um, ranging from the actor Ashton Kutcher to the founders of Candy Crush. First of all, how did how did Ashton Kutcher get involved? He has a fund, so it's it's it, the fund is called Sound Ventures, um, and I have never met Ashton Kutcher. I just wondered. I'm just going to put was... it on the record, guys. Okay. So if he was part of one of your Facebook or WhatsApp groups, um, <laughs> how has that actually enabled you then that that sort of funding and raising money from investors to supercharge the business? And and how did you know it was the right time? I've got some amazing investors. Um, I have a female founders fund who invest in consumer female businesses. And they're incredible because there's a level of education that you don't even have to do about the market because they already know. Mm. So they already understand the value of the market before you do it. Um, I've got, obviously, as you mentioned, Sweet Capital, the, the king.com guys, NEA. And we've been very fortunate in terms of when I knew to raise I did a pre-seed round, so before we launched, I, I did a, a very small raise, and then I did a seed round proper in November last year. I raised because I needed to grow and scale, and mm -hmm. we needed to, to kind of give ourselves the best chance. Women who are mothers are very discerning. Like, it's a tough crowd. It's, it's not the same as pitching to people looking for relationships. <laughs> it's a different crowd. Um, and, so, and so I had to put us in the best possible um, position. Fundraising is a full-time job and it is extremely uh, tiring. And, of course, it, w it was much easier last year. Um, we had a product, we had traction, we had good growth, and people were reaching out to us. Right. But when we were doing pre-seed, it was tough. You know, the, also people weren't talking about motherhood. The diff there was a completely different narrative. And so... Again, resilience, being thick-skinned, knowing my market inside out so that every time someone had a but what about, I already knew what the but what about was right. and I already had a response for it. And you get better, you learn. Every time you do it, you get a little bit more polished. Well, on the subject of investment, one of the partner companies involved in this year's Boom competition are specialists in that very area. With some top tips on raising finance and debunking some common myths, I want to pass over now to Sarah Abrahams, Head of Growth Finance at Grant Thornton. Hi, my name is Sarah Abrahams. I run the growth finance practice at Grant Thornton. And what that means is we help small businesses that are looking to raise equity or debt finance up to £10 million to grow their business. And we're also involved in the Voom competition this year. So over the last year, we've been involved with Voom. I got to go on the tour. I delivered a workshop in Sheffield and we're sponsoring an award this year around excellent leadership teams. And we've been overwhelmed with the entries that we've had and we're just in the process of uh, whittling down to our top three before choosing a finalist. 
But today we'd like to share some insights around what it's really like to raise finance. So it's one of the things that has come up a number of times as we've been working with Voom and talking to a lot of the entrepreneurs is what is it really like to raise finance and just debunking some of the myths, some of the preconceptions that those businesses have. So the first mistake that we see companies make is that they go to their bank as their first port of call for raising funding. And the reason why it's so hard for companies to raise money from their bank at an early stage is that future cash flow is uncertain and the banks just can't get comfortable that the ability to repay is there. So there's a lot of time wasted and it's quite disheartening to go and hear that that route is not possible for you. But the best way to finance your business when you're first starting out is to look for equity investment. And there are a number of sources available. They're just not terribly well known. So there are business angels who are individuals that will invest their personal wealth into companies. And there's a lot of value add that those individuals bring as well as money. So they will look to be actively involved in the strategy and direction of the business, opening up you know, black book of contacts and supporting with operational issues, etc. There's also family office money, which not a lot of businesses are aware of because family offices are quite elusive. Family office is the pooled wealth of a wealthy family, and they have uh, a portion of their wealth that is being run by a manager to invest in higher risk, high growth opportunities. And they can be sector specific, so they'll generally like to invest in businesses where they have a lot of direct experience or a, a lot of interest, but they tend only to work with the advisor community in terms of receiving their deal flow. So it's quite hard as a small business to go direct to those sort of funders. And as well as business angels, family office, there's also routes like crowdfunding, which has got a lot of attention in the press recently as a great way to raise a lot of money from a lot of people. So a lot of people putting in a small amount of funding to make up a larger funding round. And for businesses where they are perhaps selling direct to consumers, it can be a really powerful way to raise awareness of your brand. So we're seeing companies choose that as a, a first resort. What's important to note is that you wouldn't just put a crowdfunding campaign live on a platform and expect people to come and look at your pitch and, and put money in. There's a big marketing campaign that needs to happen behind the scenes. And often you would do a little bit of work beforehand to get a few cornerstone investors, maybe some business angels or a family office that would be putting in a, a portion of the raise before it goes live. And as well as those three forms, there's also more traditional institutional routes like venture capital. This tends to be an option for businesses that are raising slightly more money, so probably between one to 10 million. And most venture capital funds will be looking for a million of revenue as a benchmark. So it, it tends to be slightly later down the curve so additional myths that we often come across when we're supporting businesses, a lot of companies will say to us that they want a non-disclosure agreement in place before they go and contact investors. And understandably, you know, it's a, 
an emotional process raising funding. You've grown it to a certain level and there's certainly a lot of intellectual property in the business that you want to retain and don't want to give all of your secrets away. But in practice in the market, you will struggle to find investors that will be willing to sign NDAs. And the reason being that they receive hundreds of applications for funding every week. And if they were to manage the paperwork, it would be an impossible task. And often the legal um, information on NDAs is actually quite loose anyway and wouldn't really stand up. So we tend to say to companies, don't let that be a barrier with a conversation with an investor. Don't insist on having a non-disclosure agreement in place to have a conversation because it's an instant reason why they won't progress an opportunity. Another myth that we often hear is around competition. So competitive markets and comparable businesses that are operating in that space. So investors do not like to hear that you have no competition. And this is a big point that we, again, work with businesses a lot on. If you are saying we have no competition, it could raise questions around, well, why not? Is this not an interesting market? Why aren't other people looking at this? And one thing that we like to say to companies to test this point is every market has a gap, but not every gap has a market. So being able to demonstrate that the gap you have identified has willing buyers, willing consumers that are interested in what you're doing and can deliver revenue, which is the most important thing. So finally, the last myth that we wanted to speak about is how long it takes to raise money. And we have a lot of companies come to us with a clear defined time frame. They've spent a lot of time and often a lot of money developing a business plan. And they are ready to go and talk to the market, but they don't have connections. And that's something that we help businesses with. But when you talk to them about their expectations on timelines, they will often say, we, we need the money in two months. And in reality, if you are not already in discussions with investors, it's more like a six-month process. Just due diligence alone, which is the sort of completion process and where a lot of the legals get done, that can take two months in itself. So if you are not already in discussion with funders, having an expectation that you'll be able to raise in two months is just unrealistic. So just around the time frame it takes, building in a roadmap of six to nine months, if, you're, if you haven't done work on a business plan either, is more realistic. So for anyone listening that is thinking about fundraising, we would love to talk to you. We run monthly funding clinics and drop-in sessions at all of our offices across the UK. We've got a team of growth finance experts that are always willing to sit down and talk through options and hear about your business's ambitions, your journey so far, and hopefully give you some pointers and shortcuts before you embark on that journey. So if anyone would like to get in touch, they absolutely can. Our growth finance services fall within G by Grant Thornton. So if a business wants to get in touch, they can search G by Grant Thornton or visit our website g.grantthornton.co.uk.
Thank you to Sarah Abrahams from Grant Thornton with some really practical tips there. And as Sarah mentioned, this week they will be judging the G by Grant Thornton Award as part of the VOOM competition, recognising outstanding leadership and offering a lucky business finance support and one-to-one mentoring as part of their prize. I should say a big good luck to all Voomers involved over the next few days. As we speak, the semi-final event is happening in Manchester and we'll be covering the action from there. And the finale on Wednesday the 23rd of May in London on the podcast over the next week. In the meantime, though, you can head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash Voom for the latest. Back in the studio now with Michelle Kennedy, the founder of Peanut, an app which helps mothers, and Dr. Sue Black of Tech Mums. So we heard Sarah talk there about the role of advisors when fundraising. So have mentors played a role in your career, Sue, and and who and how? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I couldn't have done what I've done without mentors, really. And... I guess I didn't realise early on how important it would be, but um, my first kind of like real mentor was um, Professor Dame Wendy Hall, CBE, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And she gave a talk, just a really funny, great talk about what it's like being a woman, being, I think, dean of a a faculty at um, University of Southampton. And she's a computer scientist. And, uh, yeah, she was just hilarious. And I just thought, I want to be like Wendy. <laughs> How old <laughs> were you great. at that point looking probably at her? Maybe 20 years ago. Right, OK. I can't, I can't remember. So I was five. No, just <laughs> And, and um, yeah, so she gave a great talk. And I just thought, I, I need to talk to her. Like, I need to be connected to her in some way. I need, the, like, I need conversations with Wendy in my life kind of thing. So I went up to her at the end of her talk and said, you know, I loved what you said, blah, blah, blah. And um, would you please be my mentor? And she said, oh, I'd love to, but I just don't have time. Right. So I was like, oh, um, can I just have one hour a year of, of your time? And and she said, oh, I can't say no to that. How so, wonderful. You yeah, no, so it actually worked. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. And then we met up for lunch like a month after that. And, you know, gradually over the years became friends. And now she's like a really, really dear friend I was in Singapore recently visiting my son and his family and uh, Wendy was over doing stuff at the University of Singapore at the time so we met up for dinner in Singapore and yeah how my life has changed Uh (laughs) (laughs) Michelle what about you you, has there been a single mentor I think that I've kind of accumulated people along the way I remember the first like my first kind of inspiring female was a law lecturer called Norma Hurd who um, was this badass who would walk into University of Sheffield, lots of hills, um, in in Crooks every day in Manolo's and always looked incredible and smelled amazing and was absolutely terrifying. And you did not go into your insurance law lecture and not know everything. And if she stopped on you and you didn't know, you didn't go again for a few weeks because it was it was too more time. <laughs> um, and I was obsessed with her and I just in the same way she was my tutor and I wanted to emulate parts of who she was she was the only woman there are those Manolos on your feet I just had to look under the desk (laughs) they're not but they're quite a good imitation very nice (laughs) Um, (laughs) so um, I I just wanted to be fearless like her and I she owned that faculty and she was the only woman and I thought she was amazing 
And then I went to, when I was training, there was another female partner and she was the youngest female partner and she had this team of women in her team. And again, I was like, wow, she's so cool. And um, it was up north and there weren't that many kind of women there, let alone kind of female partners. And so I've kind of accumulated people along the way. And by the way, that's not to say that I haven't had male mentors too. Right. It's super important that you kind of get a really good skill set. And I suppose I'm like a magpie. I see features in people that I like mm-hmm. and I'm like, I want to be like that. Or I want to emulate that person at this point in, in time when I'm struggling with this. And so I've been a bit like that. I yeah, I feel exactly the same about that. You know, like it's not like you have one mentor and they, they're just like everything to yeah. you. I think choose people that have some kind of skill or something that really attracts you to them kind of intellectually and stuff that they know that they can help you with or or caring about the same kind of things. And, and that can be lots of different people. And you actually want very different people. You don't want everyone to be similar because, of course... They'll say the same thing. Exactly. You know, you need a variety of opinions and expertise. So, Sue, earlier I mentioned Bletchley Park and the story of the women codebreakers being a huge inspiration to you. Will you tell us a bit more about your connection to that? Sure. I set up BCS Women, the British Computer Society Women's Group, 20 years ago in 98. And that led me up to Bletchley Park for the first time in 2003. And I remember, like, on the on the train on the way up there... I didn't really know much about Bletchley Park. I was just going for a meeting. All I really knew was that the codebreakers worked there, but I didn't quite know anything else. And in my head, for some reason, I thought it was about 50 old blokes kind of like doing the Times crossword and a bit of codebreaking on the side. (laughs) So that was just the image in my head. So I got there, went to the meeting, and then after the meeting, went for a walk around the site because it's like 26 acres. It's a big site with lots of huts. And um, walked into one of the huts and saw these guys who were rebuilding what turned out to be Turing's bomb machine. So the, um, not bomb as in bomb exploding, no bomb with an E on the end. And talked to them about what they were doing. And they said they were recreating, rebuilding this machine, uh, which had been used uh, during World War II to kind of industrialise the code breaking process. So I got very excited about what they were doing. Then they asked me why I was there. I said, I'm here representing this group of women in computing. And they said, oh, did you know more than half the people that worked here were women? I was like, no, I thought it was 50 old blokes. And they said, no, it was about 10,000 people and about 8,000 women. That just blew my mind that I didn't know anything about that at all. So I went away and I thought, I've got to raise some money to record like the oral histories of some of the women that worked here so that we can capture their stories because I don't know anything about their contribution and there was nothing online about it at the time. So eventually got some money, ran the oral history project and then at the the launch of that project, the director of Bletchley Park at the time said that they were, he was really worried they were going to have to close, they didn't have enough funding, he said they were teetering on a financial knife edge So by then, I was head of a computer science department at the University of Westminster. I emailed all the heads and professors of computing in the country, kind of basically got them on board um, with with, with what turned out to be a campaign to save Bletchley Park. Realised the potential of Twitter because even just typing Bletchley Park into the search box in Twitter, I could find everyone in the world who was tweeting about Bletchley Park. Yeah, So built a campaign off the strength of that, got people like Stephen Fry involved through Twitter, became the most retweeted person in the world in 2009. Oh, I did not have that fact. 
That is extraordinary. That's an amazing fact. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, Well obviously that will will never happen again, but you know. You never know. It was true on one day. I love that. That is phenomenal. And um, you wrote a book, obviously. uh, Yeah, and I've written a book called Saving Bletchley Park, all about the campaign, how to use social media in campaigning. And it also kind of tells anecdotes about, like, how I ended up on... um, breakfast time in the morning drunk talking about were you drunk in the morning yeah, were you hung yeah. over from the night before yes, had you been, been up all night till, yes 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 listen to this woman but I all the details it. are in my book i love there that. we go yes <laughs> buy the book what is the book called saving bletchley park thank you very much uh looking to the future now where do you think the next big opportunities are in terms of helping women in the world of entrepreneurship and um, because there are There are still huge debates going on, things like the gender gap. So I'm just interested to know from both of you how we continue to improve things. Michelle? Well, we have to keep having the conversation because if you you let the conversation die, then nothing changes. Um, But it's not enough just to have lip service, right? We actually have to make progress and make things happen. And that includes the fact that when women go and have children and you know, businesses hemorrhage talent. They do all they can to bring those women back in. And that needs the government to think about how we can implement flexible working and childcare support and all of those things. Because let's be honest, the world is no good and the business world is no good if we don't have those brilliant women involved in business. We already know that businesses that have women at senior levels perform better. That's a fact. In in which case, it's good for the economy, it's good for business to make those women and help those women get back into the workplace and not hemorrhage that talent. Um, and that's incumbent on our government to help us do that. That's where the the next big change needs to come. Sue, what about you? Any thoughts on how we continue to improve things? You know, I just feel like the only way to really move things along is to have quotas for certain things so that we can get more diversity, more women into senior positions, more women on boards, more diversity in boards. And I think if we did that for a, a short-term period... We could kind of make a step change and then everyone would realise that actually things are better when there are more diverse boards, when there are more women on boards, more women in leadership. And then we could just probably stop the quotas because everyone would have realised that actually it just completely makes sense. But there's no other way to make that happen in a reasonable amount of time. Like with the the gender pay gap, um, about 10 years ago... There was a report, or maybe five years ago, but a few years ago, which said, you know, the gender pay gap was our 15% or whatever it was. And kind of on the trajectory we're on, it will take another 60 years or something to get parity. And I just thought, what? I'll be dead. I'll be dead when that happens. That's wrong. It's got to happen more quickly. And the only way to do that is some kind of legislation, quotas, I think. Well, yeah, the Citigroup did a report this year, actually, about that. And... um, they were saying, I can't remember the exact number, but that gen- we won't see gender parity, basically, in our lifetime. Mm. And I think that is... Very traumatising. Very, very difficult. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to with. end this podcast <laughs> no. on such a dismal note. <laughs> but we have to. Sorry about that. Um, thank you so much for talking to me today. How can people find out more about Peanut? Search Peanut on the App Store or Google Play Store or find us at peanut-app.io. And Sue, tech mums and all the things you're involved in. Um, Well, I'm at Dr Black on Twitter. Tech mums is techmums.co and tech mums on Facebook. And yeah, just Google tech mums or Dr Sue Black and you can find us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Michelle Kennedy and Dr Sue Black, thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you.
A huge thanks too to Sarah Abrahams from Grant Thornton. You can join us again over the next week and we'll be bringing you two special shows with all the action from the Boom Finals. In the meantime, head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk and follow Virgin Media Business across social media for your updates. But until then, from me, Nikki Beatty, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>